Well, a great time yesterday at Sports Fellowship. I had a just a ball of a time um, playing football with many of the men here. Um, you know, it was really a, a personal experience of our teachings on spiritual disciplines to actually go out there and to uh, physically give an effort in sports uh, with brothers that, and sisters uh, in Christ. It was just a great, great time of fellowship and. Um, when it started raining, I just got happier. It was, uh, I can't remember the last time I did anything like athletic in the rain. Maybe it was junior high or high school, and the last time I did something like that. To do that yesterday was just, just a great, great time again. Um, for those of you who are older, I know that uh, you're struggling with uh, soreness um, and pain. I think we brought some extra Advil and Tylenol. So if you get any kind of cramps during service, um, please uh, make use of those medicines in the back. Well, let's start our study this morning. We are on a tangent of a tangent on our study in John 14. And I don't know, I'll make a U-turn or left turn one of these days and we'll get back to John 14 exposition of the passages there. But we're at the second to the last of five spiritual disciplines five irreducible, essential spiritual disciplines to grow in holiness and maturity as a believer. Second to the last. Our first spiritual discipline that the Bible called us to is mortification of sin. If you want to make any headway in terms of Christian growth, if you want to be holy and live God-honoring lives, we have to stop sinning. We have to resolve in our minds and our hearts not to coexist sin any longer. And there is only one approach to sin. It's to kill it. It's to mortify it. Positionally, sin is dead in our flesh. Though it is waging a guerrilla warfare, therefore, we need to mortify it day in and day out, replacing our sinful lusts with Christian lusts, passion, desire for Christ instead of sin. The second spiritual discipline was redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. Time, once it's lost, is gone forever. We can buy anything in the world, but we cannot buy back time once it is lost. If we want to be mature, we need to make use of every opportunity that God allows to us. Every year, every month, every week, every day, every hour, and use it for godly purposes, redeeming the time. The third spiritual discipline was studied last week. And, you know, Scripture, Bible intake, is a a major discipline with a lot of sub-disciplines. There's hearing of the Word, meditation, studying, uh, reading, and hearing the Word of God. But I just reduce it down to one spiritual discipline there. Just read the Word. We need to hear the Word. We need to study the Word. We need to teach the Word, share the Word, all these things. But just start with one simple discipline. Just read it. 20 minutes a day, minimum. Just read the Bible. And you will grow as a believer. Guaranteed. Or here is our fourth spiritual discipline. And to introduce this topic, I want to give you a little insight into my practice of shepherding. How I shepherd my wife, the leaders of Cornerstone, how I shepherd the members here at church. When I meet with my wife, I meet with the guys here for shepherding. My mindset as I enter into that time is to to listen to what they have to say. They've heard me enough. They heard me on Sundays. My wife listens to me all the time. You guys hear me all the time at church. When I get into one-on-one relationship time with you, it's not to talk anymore. My job is to listen and to listen well by asking questions. So I'm not always successful in doing this, but my mindset is at least 70% of that time, I want to be the one listening. And I want to have that person talk and share with me how he is doing in the Lord. And believe it or not, even though I'm a preacher, I, I enjoy listening. I mean, I hope 
I mean, it's true. It might not look like it or seem like it, but I, I, I enjoy asking questions, getting to know people, finding out what's in people's hearts, how they are living. I really do enjoy listening. Um, to facilitate that, I try to ask um, many questions. Um, some questions I start by asking, how are you doing? I ask, how's your walk with the Lord? What are, what are you struggling in? What are some areas of growth? I ask questions like, how's your family? How's your relationship with your wife? You know, how are your children doing? I ask questions like, how are things at work? You know, with your boss, or with your coworkers, or the college students, how's, how's your studies going? What was your major again? You know, if I talk to a single brother, I ask that question. You know, who are you interested in? Right? Who is it now? Right? <laughs> um, but there's a question that I, I sometimes ask, and my heart kind of drops just before they answer, because how they answer is, is so significant. Um, how they answer reveals so much about... All these questions are revealed in the answer to this one question. So I don't ask any of these questions. I, just, I could just ask this one question uh, to find out how they're doing. And the question is, do you pray? Do you pray? Um, the most important question reveals a man's heart and life. Has the most far-reaching ramifications for his life, family, ministry, and walk with Christ. And it is a question that is asked with three simple words. Do you pray? And I'm talking about private prayer, secret prayer, prayer, praying with the doors closed, praying personally and privately to the Lord. So this morning, let me ask you this question. Let's cut to the chase. Let's set aside our pretenses. Let me ask you, do you pray? Really, do you pray? Tell me the truth. It's a simple question. It requires a very simple answer. Your answer here reveals more about you than anything else in all the world. Do you pray at home? Do you pray in the morning? Pray at noon? Do you pray at night? Do you attend prayer meetings? Do you pray with fellow Christians? Do you pray during our worship service in flock groups? Are you a man or woman who prays to God? It is a penetrating and life-defining question. And I'm sure as many are in this room who have many different answers to this simple question. Let me give you four reasons why private prayer is so important. Four reasons for the importance of prayer. It might be new for some, but a reminder to many. But in light of our neglect of private prayer, we must be reminded clearly from the Word of God why private secret prayer is so very important for our lives. The first reason private prayer is so important is, is that it is so neglected. No Christian duty is more neglected than private prayer. You ask anyone... And the, the weakest discipline in their spiritual lives, in their Christian life, is prayer. Ask anyone. In Q&A at Shepherd's Conference, they asked John MacArthur this question, and his answer was invariably prayer. This is what Pastor J.C. Ryle wrote years ago. It's quite lengthy, but it's worthy of our attention. He's, he wrote, I once thought in my ignorance that most people said their prayers and many people prayed. I have lived to think differently. I have come to the conclusion that the great majority of Christian, professing Christians do not pray at all. Okay, listen to that. He was an aged, esteemed, seasoned pastor, and after years of ministry in the church, his conclusion is that most Christians pray not at all. It's not they struggle with prayer or they attempt to pray. Most Christians simply do not pray in private. He continues, I know that this sounds very shocking and will startle many, but I am convinced that prayer is just one of those things 
which is thought to be a private matter, and like many private matters, it is shamefully neglected. It is everybody's duty, and as it often happens in such cases, it is a business carried on by very few. It is one of those private transactions between God and our souls, which no eye see, and therefore one which is in every temptation to pass over and leave undone. I believe that there are thousands who've never said a word of prayer at all in their whole lives. They eat, they drink, they sleep, they rise, they go to work, they return home, they breathe God's air, they see God's sun, they walk on God's earth, they enjoy God's mercies, they have dying bodies, they have judgment and eternity before them, but they never speak to God. They, li- they live like animals that perish. They behave like creatures without souls. They have no words to say to Him in whose hand is their life and breath and all things and whose mouth they must one day receive their everlasting sentence. How dreadful this seems. But if the secrets of men were only known, how common this knowledge would be. I believe that there are tens of thousands of people whose prayers are nothing but a mere form. Or a formula, if you will. A set of words repeated by rote without a thought and without meaning. Many, even of those who use good forms, mutter their prayers over after they've gone into bed or scramble over them while they are getting ready in the morning. Many men think what they please, but they can count on the fact that in the sight of God, this is not prayer. This is not praying. Words that are said without heart are utterly useless to our souls as the drum beating of the poor heathen before their idols. Where there is no heart, the lips may move, the tongue may wag, but there is nothing that God listens to. This is not prayer, end quote. Well, I believe Pastor Ryle. I believe his words. I believe that most Christian professing Christians do a lot in public, but in private, most of us do not pray. Sadly, this is the indictment that God makes against Israel time and again. Israel, even in their heydays of public worship of Yahweh, God condemns them again and again of this one very thing. The fact that they do not pray, they do not call upon the Lord. And as God rebukes Israel, as God condemns Judah, there's a note of sadness in His rebuke. There's a sense of mourning and heartache. Why will you not speak to me? It is like a husband going to his wife. Why will you not talk to me? Why will you not call on my name? Why do you refuse to to speak with me and share with me your heart? There is that theme running again and again as God rebukes Israel for their lack of prayer. Isaiah 43.20 God says, Isaiah 43.20 The wild animals honor me. The jackals, the owls, because I provide water for them. They speak to me. Yet you have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have not spoken to me, O Israel. Isaiah 64, 6. God says, All of your righteous deeds have become like filthy rags. All these are public pretense and acts of righteousness. They're like filthy rags in my sight. And God says, You know why? Verse 7. No one calls on my name. No one strives to lay hold of me. Zephaniah 1, 6. They have turned back from following the Lord. They neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. And the worst of all, Jeremiah 10.21, the reason the people do not pray is because the shepherds of Israel do not pray. Jeremiah 10.21, the shepherds are senseless. They're fools. And do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they do not prosper and all their flock is scattered. The first reason prayer is so neglected is because prayer is so important. The first reason is because it is our greatest weakness. Right? So, you know, as believers, we have spiritual disciplines. 
It's easy for us to hide in our strengths. It's easy for me to talk about theology and preaching and the Word because it is public. It's one of my strengths. And I want to avoid my weaknesses. I want to cover my, my areas where I'm weak and hide it. But if we're sincere about pursuit of Christ, we will strive most diligently in the area where we are most weak. And because we are weakest in the area of prayer, because we neglect it so much, it is that much more important. Second reason prayer is so important is because it is one of the surest marks that you are a true Christian. It's one of the surest marks of true faith. You know, we've been praying for my dad's salvation for years. For years past, Thanksgiving and Christmas have been the most discouraging um, seasons of, of the year. Thanksgiving and Christmas, we would get together with our family. And Sir and I would just be distraught and we would mourn and be just grieved at the lack of faith in our family members. At their, just their being so secular and worldly and, and just, just a lack of love for Christ. And so every Thanksgiving and Christmas, we would be burdened. And we've been praying for my dad for so long. He would, he would make a mockery of the Christian faith or the Word of God. He would laugh while I'm praying. I mean, he would, you know, he's, you know, my dad, you know, he was kind of a very prideful man. Well, he recently, as many of you know, trusted in Christ. And we just had our Thanksgiving. So right now we're saying, best Thanksgiving of our lives. I mean, it was just, it was just the best. We're going around sharing what we're most thankful for. My dad started, and he said he was thankful for his faith in Christ. I mean, he was thankful for his salvation, for forgiveness of sins. My mom was crying. She was saying she's thankful for our dad's salvation and God's faithfulness. And certain was sharing. We're all like, just, you know, tearing up. They're all losing it. I'm trying to hold it together, right? I'm, but I'm losing it too. And I mean, we're just so thankful. And my dad first professed faith in Christ. I so wanted to believe that he was a Christian, but I had to fight against that temptation, so I was cautiously optimistic. I didn't want to give him assurance or affirm his faith right away because that would hinder his walk. I wanted to be cautious, optimistic but cautious. The first evidence of true Christianity was with my mom. I asked, I asked her, how's dad doing? And she said, James, he's praying at home. He's praying. And that gave me so much joy. That, right, that was a moment where I saw my dad in a new life. Because from that moment on, there was true evidence of, of, of true faith in Christ. You see, private prayer is one of the surest marks of true faith in Christ. An absence of that is one of the surest marks that you are involved in religion before man but not before God. An author said, a man may preach from false motives, a man may write books and make fine speeches, he might seem diligent in good works and yet be a Judas Iscariot. A man seldom goes into his closet and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is a true Christian. This is one of the common marks of all the elect of God. This is, I believe, the best proof of salvation ever. Private prayer. Private prayer. And that was Saul's testimony. Saul was a Pharisee, a member, member of the Sanhedrin. He was immersed in prayer. He prayed three, five times a day. But it wasn't true prayer. In Philippians 3, he says, all of that was rubbish. All of that was excrement. You know, all my religious activity, all my many words of praying to God, it was trash. Because my confidence was in man. I was doing it for man. He only really started to pray when he prayed in private in Acts chapter 9. Remember that? God made him blind. And for three days, he didn't eat or drink. He was alone in straight street. And God calls uh, a brother Ananias to go to, uh, to, to Saul. 
And this is what God says. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And it says, For he is praying. He's praying. Go to him. He's a trick. Why? Go see Saul. God, this is all an act. He's here to persecute us. He wants to kill us. He's acting as a Christian so that we might come and fellowship with him and then he will turn on us and persecute us. Come on, God. This is his tactic. God says, no, he's a Christian. How do I know that? He's all by himself. He's blind. You know what he's doing? He's praying. The surest marks of genuine faith. John Bunyan said, if you are not a praying person, you are not a Christian. Richard Baxter, prayer is the breath of the new creature. So first, no Christian duty is so neglected. Second reason, surest marks of salvation. Third reason, it's so important, it is one of the best helps to grow as a believer. One of the best helps to grow as a believer. You know, even in Cornerstone, definitely Church Universal, there's a vast difference in terms of, within Christianity, in terms of people's faith, their maturity, character, godliness, and youthfulness to God. Even here in Cornerstone, there are, there are mature and immature. Yesterday at football, I was joking around, it was all over. Let's play football, mature against immature, you know? So we, we understand, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not offending anyone. I don't have anybody in, in mind, really. No, I, I don't. But the, the reality is, within the church, there are those who are mature, and there are those who are immature in the faith. And you know, there are some believers, once they become believers, they, they follow Christ. And you know what? Some of, these, some of these Christians, they never stop growing. It's amazing. They grow like weeds. Each week, they're fresh and vibrant in their hearts. And I see them on Sunday... They're, they're delighting in the Lord. They have a smile on their face. They're not defeated by life. They're not defeated by sin. Their countenance reflects that they're mature. They're enjoying Christ. They're f- pursuing the Lord. Their testimony is present tense. It's not, oh, I used to, or all oh, years ago, God saved me. <coughs> Excuse me. Their testimony is present tense. I am now walking with Christ. They have fresh water from the well. Their fire is br- Blazing. They're adding grace to grace, faith to faith, strength to strength. Every time you meet them, their heart seems stronger. It's like a little kid, right? Every time you see them, they've grown. Right? They're growing every day, it seems like. Well, some Christians are like that. They're adding faith to faith, strength to strength. Their hearts seem larger. Their spiritual stature bigger, they're taller, they're stronger. Every year they appear to see more, know more, believe more. They're growing in their passions. Their hearts are more humble and tender. They weep more easily with each year that passes by because of Christ. They're abounding in good work. And you know what? They're not tired of good work. They're unwearied in good work. They're steadfast, immovable, abounding in good works for Christ and for the church. They attempt things that are beyond them. And they want just greater challenges for Christ. They want to they study more, read more, minister more. They want the challenges of evangelism. And they say evangelism is not enough. I want to go to missions. And missions, I want to go in the further where there's unreached people. Their hearts are growing bigger and bigger. And when they fail... They dust themselves off and try again. They, they, these Christians, there are some of them out there, they just keep growing and they make Christ look beautiful. You see their lives and they adorn the beauty of the doctrine of God our Savior and they just glorify God by their lives, by their testimonies. They, they, make, they esteem and they raise the view of Scripture by their lives. They raise, uh, they give a high view of God's Word. That's some believers, while others, they, they almost stop growing. They become a Christian, and next day they stop growing. They're Christians, they profess faith, but next day they've stopped growing. Or their growth is so slow, it's like watching grass grow, you know. 
in Arizona or something. It's just, it's barely discernible. You know, they, have a, they struggle with the same sins year in and year out. It's like this soap opera. It's the same thing year in and year out. So how are you doing? Oh, he's struggling with that. And a month later, oh, he's still there. A year later, oh, wow. You know, five years later, the same things. They're drowning in sin. Right? When they share, same things come out of their mouths. It's always past tense testimony. They have no new understanding of the Word of God. No new experiences in Christ. Christian life is permanently in the past tense. Same childishness, same feebleness, same shallowness, same narrowness of the heart, <coughs> same littleness of mind. Their lives are petty, shallow, wallowing in self-centeredness. They are perpetually drowning in discontentment and self-pity. They have this martyr complex. It's like a broken record. It's like same thing again and again. And you know what the difference is between these two Christians? The one that's growing and one that's not? It is not because God gave the Holy Spirit a different measure. It is not. We learned that, right? Baptism and indwelling. It's not. God gives some believers you know, double portion of the Holy Spirit. God gives some other believers a you know, single portion. Some give, you know, God gives others the low octane, you know, regular unleaded, you know, you know, arco, you know, gasoline, right? Or Holy Spirit. That's not the reason. That's true in intelligence, right? That's true. I mean, that's true in terms of athletic ability. We saw that yesterday. Varying degrees of athletic ability. Even like personality and humor. Very true, right? Some people have it. Some people just don't have it, right? Don't have humor. But in terms of the Holy Spirit, it's not true. Every Christian has the full measure of the Holy Spirit. The only difference between growth and non-growth is private prayer. Private prayer. This is the reason for the difference. The believer grows because he prays. The believer is growing year in and year out because at home, morning, noon, and night, she's calling on the name of the Lord. She's pouring out her heart to Christ. The believer who is not praying, I'm not going, he or she is worried. He or she is anxious. He or she is planning. He or she is wasting life. And they're not praying. And the only reason for growth and non-growth is the issue of prayer. Holiness and maturity is available to all Christians if you will only pray. I talked to a guy recently and I said, have you given your best to spiritual disciplines? Have you given yourself to the matter of prayer? Because I don't believe you have. By looking at your life, I don't believe you have. Because if you were a man of prayer, you would live differently. You don't know how much you can grow, how greatly you can experience God, all because... You have not given yourself to the issue of prayer. Luther said, no one can believe how powerful prayer is. Richard Sibbs reminds us that prayer exercises all the graces of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is the engine that moves all the graces, right? You want to mortify sin? You got to pray. You want to redeem the time? You have to pray. You want to, you want to uh, uh, read the Word? You have to pray. You want to love one another? You have to pray. Prayer is the engine that moves everything. Flavel confirms by saying you must strive to excel in prayer for as much no grace within or service can thrive without prayer. Nothing can thrive without discipline of prayer. Well, the fourth reason prayer is so important is that the neglect of private prayer doesn't just stunt growth. It is the one great cause of backsliding. Neglect of prayer is the one great cause of backsliding. Time and again, I've heard believers say this to me. James, you know, I backslid into sin because I trusted in myself. You know, James, I'm just... Backslidden now, you know, landslide actually. <laughs> you know, I was too prideful. Or 
I let worldliness creep into my life. I became worldly. Do we not realize all these are symptoms? These are symptoms. You're picking at the fruit. The root cause of all these things of trusting in yourself, of being prideful, of becoming worldly, the root cause is neglect of prayer. Prayer is what causes us to depend upon Christ. Right? How do we depend upon the Lord? It's through prayer. Paul told us this, that through prayer, God calls him humility. Prayer is what produces humility, helps humility. Prayer is what prompts us to be alert against worldliness, alert against temptations of the world. Another pastor affirms, quote, that all decay begins in the closet. No heart thrives without much secret conversation with God. And nothing will make amends for the lack of it. Lack of prayer. Neglect of prayer is the first cause of backsliding. George Whitfield, a neglect of secret prayer has been frequently an inlet to many spiritual diseases and has been attended with fatal consequences. You know, of all the bad things that could happen to a believer... The worst thing is to backslide. It is one of the most unhappy conditions of man. It is better. I understand what I'm saying, the context. I mean, I don't want... You know, I could go on a whole other sermon to to have the context. Please don't misunderstand me. But it's better even to be a non-believer than to be a believer who is going against his conscience and living in sin and backslidden. Because you're just so... This is one area is misery. You're so miserable. You know, a sinner doesn't know any better. They're sinning and living in the world. At least, you know, to their ignorance, they're enjoying sin. A believer is walking with the Lord. They're happy. They're walking with Christ. A believer who's going against their faith, their conscience, and, and they're backslidden is misery upon misery. And it is clearly seen in their face. Right? You can see it. You see, many people, you know, they're, they're, they're jaded, they're, they're, they're hollow, they're almost comatose in their spiritual life, and the fire is gone, there's no passion, it's because their conscience is being seared, their hearts are being hardened, and they're miserable. What a sad existence. That's the worst existence of the believer. That's why you know, I had a whole section on this. The importance of having a clear conscience. Paul gave his best to have a clear conscience before God and man. That was one of the most important things to him. He made sure that he could do ministry and serve God with a clear conscience. He could preach and serve and pray with a clear conscience. Not, not struggle with, not backslide. Because going against one's conscience in terms of one's faith is the most miserable state in a man's life. Well, these are the four reasons why prayer, secret prayer is so important. And knowing the hearts of the members of Cornerstone, participants of our Sunday worship, I know that your desire, as is mine, is to pray. That your heart cries out right now, yes, James, Pastor, I want to pray. I need help. I want to be a man of prayer. I want to be be a woman who calls upon the name of the Lord. How can I do this? How do I do this? What are some some help that you can give me for practically helping me to pray day in and day out? Well, for our remaining time, let me give you uh, share with you four components, four features, characteristics. Ingredients in prayer. You know, you go to your closet, you get on your knees, you shut the door, and you say, okay, now what do I do? Right? Now what do I say? Well, this is what you are to say. Four, four features of biblical prayer. And made it easy to remember, it's acronym ACTS. ACTS. Very basic. Adoration of God, confession of sin, thanksgiving, and supplication. We start with adoration. Adoration of God. Adoration, synonymous words are esteem of God. 
honoring God, praising God. By the best word is worship. We begin, every time we pray, we start with the worship of God. Why? Because this, this is our highest calling. Why did God save us? It's not to give us a happy life. It's not to give us health, wealth, and prosperity. God didn't save us for ourselves or for our family. God saved us so that we might worship Him. God saved us for Himself. We are a means to His end. Worship is not a tangent of the Christian life. It is not an addendum. It's not an extracurricular activity. Worship is the Christian life. This is why God saved us, so that we might worship Him. It is our highest calling in life. It is our highest station, our highest service. It is our highest work, the greatest work that we can do, is to worship our Lord and King. When we go to pray, our first task is to worship God. John 4, it's amazing what Christ said to the woman from Samaria. He said, God is looking for worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. Right? Remember John 4, 23 and 24? God is seeking throughout the world. And because He does all things for His own glory, He's seeking out people who will glorify Him, who will worship Him, who will honor Him in private prayer. And rightly note that it is the worship of God, adoration of God, that the object of our worship is God the Father. Adoration is rightly focused on the Father. It centers around God and His perfection and His desire for praise and adoration. The object of worship is God. All glory goes to Him. All the honor goes to Him. All the worship goes to Him. So I think it befits a man to go into the closet with A.W. Pink's Attributes of God. Right? Or Wayne Grudem's teaching on the doctrine of God. I mean, if it fits a man or a woman to go into the, the Word of God, to prayer, with, with Genesis open, or with Isaiah open, Isaiah 6, teaching on the high view, the character, the qualities, the attributes of God, so that we might pray to Him rightly, worship Him rightly. 1 Timothy 1.17 The King eternal, immortal, and visible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. Our first order of business as we pray is acts, adoration. Luke 11.2 Disciples asked in verse 1, how should we pray? First thing you do is say, Our Father, hallowed be your name. You begin with God. From the heights of God, we go to the valley. We go to the valley of our sins. From adoration of of God, we move now to the second part, confession of sin. Confession of sin. Let me read to you what Thomas Watson said in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance. Quote, confession is self-accusing. When we come before God to confess, we accuse ourselves. By accusing ourselves, we prevent Satan from accusing us. In our confessions, we tax ourselves and confess our pride, our infidelity, our evil passions. So that when Satan accuses us, God says, already heard it. I already know. He already confessed. The humble sinner does more than accuse himself. He, as it were, sits in judgment and passes sentence upon himself and he says, Lord, I am guilty. I am not just charged with a crime of sin. God, as as a word, as judge, as, as I stand as a witness, I am guilty of these things. And then therefore he confesses that he, ha- he has deserved to be bound over to the wrath of God. He confesses, I deserve to go to hell, apart from Christ. That is 
the gravity of my sinfulness. And I, and I'm giving you guys a lot of lists, you know, a lot of things, but you know, just they are so important. I do it because they're important. Watson gives us six qualities of confession, true confession. So as we confess, these are six things that make our confession true. Because there is such a thing as false confession. The first thing that makes confession true is that it must be voluntary. It must be voluntary. Moved by the Word of God. Moved by an earnest spirit. You confess willingly to God. That's what David did in Psalm 32. He said, When I kept silent about my sin with Bathsheba, my murder of Uriah, when I kept silent and I went to the worship of God, I even led praise. My bones wasted away through groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped within me in the heat of summer. It was only then that I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Or you might say, didn't Nathan confront David? Yes, he did. But remember, David was king. David was the ruler of the land. He did not do anything unless he wanted to do it. Even Nathan had no authority over him. So Nathan opened his eyes. David confessed willingly, voluntarily, confessing his sins to God. Second, it must be sincere. It must be sincere. Confession is not, you know, it's like when, you know, when husband and husbands and wives, you know, I go to my, my wife and I say, you know, honey, I'm sorry. And she could see through it, you know, a mile away if I'm sincere or not. If I'm just saying I'm sorry because, you know, I want to go play football, she could see that a mile away. If I'm just saying the words that I don't mean it, you know, she's, you know, gracious, she lets me go, but, you know, how, how should I ask forgiveness to my wife or, or say sorry? I should mean it. I should be sincere. How much more with God who knows and sees all? Our hearts must go along with our confessions. We must mourn over sin as we confess it. We must hate the sins that we are confessing. Augustine said that before his confession, before his conversion, he confessed his sins and begged for power against it, but his heart whispered within him, Not yet, Lord. He would confess sin, but he would whisper, Oh, but I st- I'm going to do it tomorrow. I still enjoy it. That's not too bad. That's not sincere. That's not true confession. A good Christian is more honest. He confesses his sins and he mourns over it. He confesses it. He hates it. He hates himself for it. He is downcast. He goes to the valley of humiliation. He lies there humiliated because he hates the sins that he commits. Third component of true confession is that he particularizes sin. He particularizes sin. Even a wicked man will say, yes, he's a sinner. Everyone will say, yes, I've made mistakes. Yes, I have sinned. He confesses sin by wholesale. True confession acknowledges particular and specific sins. Using biblical terminology, confession is pouring out of the soul with surgical precision concerning the sins that are committed. He says, Lord, I, I, I was lusting. I lusted today. Lord, I was covetousness. I coveted that thing. I was envious of this person. I sinned a sin of hatred. I was prideful. I was jealous. I am discontent. I am rebelling. I lied. I stole. I was selfish. In confession to God, we dare not say, Lord, I'm struggling with these sins. Or I fell into temptation. We say, God, I saw that temptation a mile away and I ran towards it and I jumped with both feet and I, and I, and I strove towards these things. We particularize confession. Fourthly, true confession confesses sin in the fountain. 
confesses sin in the fountain. He acknowledges the pollution of his nature. He doesn't say, God, I don't know what happened to me. I don't know what came over me. It must be that guy. You know, or it's my boss. He is so unreasonable. It's my husband. Or it's my children. Oh God, I was tired. That's why. It was these circumstances that caused me to say, I was provoked to anger, God. No, true confession says, it's me, God. I am a sinner. I sinned, not because of anyone or anything else. I sin and I'm fully responsible and it goes to the core of who I am because I am a sinner. Psalm 51.5 Surely I was sinful at birth, David said. Sinful from the moment I was conceived in my mother's womb. From the very cell, from the very beginning, I was a sinner. Fifthly, true confession, charge ourselves to vindicate God of our responsibility. We charge ourselves at the same time we vindicate God of all responsibility. Much time has passed, but let me just read to you Daniel 9. Maybe I would exhort you this week to read Daniel 9. Daniel is studying the, uh, the prophet Jeremiah. And he realizes as he is captive in Babylon, that what Jeremiah prophesied has come true in his life. This was all prophesied. Jeremiah rebuked Judah and said, you need to repent. If you don't repent, Babylon is going to come and take you captive and destroy Jerusalem, destroy this nation. And here is Daniel in the 70th year of his captivity and he's reading Jeremiah and he realizes, we've been warned. We're the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. And then in utter humility, he goes to God in tears and he prays to God. And this is what he said. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God who who keeps His covenant of love with all who love Him and obey His commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and we have rebelled. We have turned away from Your commands and laws. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the peoples of the land. He doesn't blame God for any of that. The destruction of Jerusalem, the, the taking of the captives to the nation of, his, of Babylon, He doesn't blame God at all. He says, it's our fault, we have sinned. And then He says, righteousness belongs to you, O God. You are righteous. And then He says, Open shame belongs to us. If you understand shame in the Middle East culture, it was the the thing to be avoided at all costs. And, And Daniel says, you are righteous. Open shame belongs to us. True confession does that. It's God, you are right, you are true, you are sovereign, you are good, you are faithful, you are everything the Bible says you are. The reason for my life, reason for everything is because of my sins. Every pain in my life, every disappointment, every heartache that's in my life, my family, my ministry, every relationship is caused by my sins. I can't blame you for everything. I dare not. Every pain in my life comes from my sins. Forgive me. The final component of true confession is the resolute is the resolution not to sin again, not to commit those sins again. It's a resolution. It's a commitment. It's a sincere commitment. You know, we fail every day, we sin every day. That's why we, you know, first John one eight, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Truth is not in us. If you say, yeah, I'm not going to sin, you're lying. You're going to sin. And that's why we confess our sins every day. We know that. But every time we confess, we say to God, with God's help, with your help, I will not. Help me to not sin again in this area. A resolute decision not to sin again. True confession confesses sin and forsakes it. Origin calls confession the vomit of the soul. 
Who would go, at, go back to his own vomit and eat it again? Who would vomit and say, I'm going to eat this again. I can't wait till I come back for dessert. Well, that's what confession is. As you confess, you're vomiting out your sin. And you say, God, this is disgusting. This is gross. Lord, keep it. Keep me away from it. So as we go into prayer, adoration of God, confession of sin, the next part is to give thanks. It's to give thanks to God. It is something we need to learn. It does not come naturally. Daniel exemplified giving thanks in private worship. In Daniel 6.10, Daniel went home to his upstairs room where his windows were open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees. He prayed and he gave thanks to God. Giving thanks to God is the responsibility of the men in the church. We are the ones should be the foremost in giving thanks to God in prayer. First Timothy 2.8 I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. We are to give thanks in all situations, in all circumstances. First Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks always, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus. This is God's will. Ephesians 5.20 Always give thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ no matter what we're going through, no matter the suffering, the heartache, the difficulty, our response is to give thanks to God. We are to give thanks before meals. John 6.11 Jesus took the loaves and He gave thanks. Before communion, He gave thanks. Before the apostles in Acts 27 broke bread, they gave thanks. Whenever we remember other Christians, in prayer, before we pray for them, we are to be thankful for them. They're Christians. They're part of our family. Ephesians 1.16, Paul said, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. First Thessalonians 1, 2, we always thank God for you. Paul said to Timothy, every time I remember you, my heart is filled with thanks. We're to give thanks to God for the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.15 Psalm 106, we thank God for who He is. Now you might go to Paramount James, I really don't have a lot to thank God for. Look at my life. I, no, that's not true. Go through these things. There are so many things to thank God for. So much so that thanksgiving should always accompany prayer. Philippians 4.6 Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, give your request to God. Colossians 4.2 Devote yourselves to prayer, be watchful and thankful. And final point about thanksgiving. It gives it glorifies God when we give thanks to Him. It glorifies Him. Psalm 69.30 I will praise God's name in song and glorify Him. How will I glorify Him? I will glorify Him with giving thanks. Okay, that's the final one. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving. And then at the end, you close your time, is supplication. Specific requests, specific requests, specific particular petitions and prayers for people and for things. A few verses on intercession. First of all, if you don't pray for people, you're sinning. You know, if, if I know you have a need and I ignore it, I'm in sin, right? You know, Billy falls down and I see that and I just ignore him. Uh, you know, I just ignore that I, he needs my help. That's sin, right? Well, spiritually, that's true. If you know someone needs your prayer, if you know someone is in need of, of help through, through prayer and you don't pray, it's sin. First Samuel twelve twenty three, Samuel said, 
As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. Tell me, I don't want to sin against God by failing to pray for you. Therefore, I will pray for you. Ephesians 6.18 We should always keep on praying for all the saints. We should should be involved in selfless prayer. Praying for others. And praying for fellow Christians. 1 Timothy 2 Paul said, I urge them, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. And not just Christians, but for everyone. And especially rulers. Kings, presidents, government officials. Colossians 4.3, Paul asks the church at Colossae to pray for us. First Thessalonians 5.25, brothers, pray for us. Reminder and call to pray for your elders, pastors, shepherds, ministry leaders. We need your prayer. Prayers, pray for us. James 5.14 As you pray for others and you realize the need of your own prayer, you need to go and ask people to pray for you. Ask your elders to pray for you. James 5.14 Is any of you spiritually sick? Any of you sliding backwards? Call the elders. Email the elders. Right? Visit your elders. And have them lay hands on you to pray for you so that you might be well. James 5.16 The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Our prayers, that's what God wants. God wants us to pray so that He might glorify Himself by giving us what we ask for. Right? That's how He glorifies Himself. Right? What do you want, child? Ask. And when I give it, I will glorify myself and glorify myself in your delight. First John 5.14 This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. A few final thoughts. Final practical helps. First of all, find a quiet place. Find a quiet place. Our Lord would go to the mountainside. You know, under the cover of darkness, He would slip out and climb a mountain to pray. Peter, Acts 10, went on a rooftop. I know some people, the only quiet place is in the garage, in their car, to pray. They do that. Susanna Wesley, she had 14 kids. You know what she did? She put her apron over her head in the kitchen, right, to pray. You got to do what you have to do, right? You need to go to a quiet place where you can shut the door, turn off, turn off the phone, turn off the music. You need a place. Physically, you need to remove yourself if you want to pray. If you don't do that, you're going to struggle for the next 20, 30 minutes. And every time you pray, you're going to struggle. You need to find a place. Secondly, you need to find a quiet hour. You need to carve out. And I'm not saying a little hour. For some of you, start with 10 minutes. Some of you move it up to 30 minutes. Some of you go to 2 hours. But you need to, you need to carve out a block of time specifically for prayer. Uh, some will say, but James, I pray all the time. You know, I, I'm praying throughout the day. I don't need to carve out a time because I'm always communing with Christ, you know, hour in, hour out. Therefore, I don't need to do that. Well, let's look at the example of Jesus Christ. If anyone was communing with the Father 24-7, it was Jesus Christ. But Luke 5.16, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and He prayed. If anyone didn't need to do this, maybe it was Jesus, but even Him. He separated himself, had a bulk of time specifically for prayer. May that be a rebuke to our hearts to say that I'm always praying. I don't need to withdraw myself. Right? Christ didn't have a sin nature. Christ didn't need to confess any sins. Christ didn't waste his life. Christ didn't wrestle with sin in his flesh. 
I mean, Christ didn't have all these encumbrances that we have, and yet He withdrew Himself. How much more need we cut out a block of time for the purpose, specific purpose of prayer? When we go on to prayer, understand prayer is not easy. Prayer, you know, prayer is war. Prayer is wrestling. Prayer is fighting. It is. I think Jacob wrestling the angel, that's a great just analogy, metaphor for prayer. That's what prayer is. We should come out of our prayer, prayer times really maybe in sweat and tears and exhausted because we don't want to pray. We want to sleep. We want to have fun. We want to be selfish. We want to sin. So we beat and buffet our bodies spiritually and physically so for the purpose of prayer. It's a vigorous, strenuous, arduous exercise of the soul and the flesh. Hebrews 5.7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. That is not just Gethsemane. Every time Jesus went to pray, He cried out to God. He wept to God. He was wrestling with God in petitions because of the need to pray. That is our task. That is our call to go to God and fight. Fight that battle. Give ourselves a physical effort for the purpose of prayer. Thirdly, Prayer must be a continued practice. Luke 18.1 Luke 18.1 Jesus told the disciples this teaching to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Believers should always pray. We should never give up in prayer. Finally, Maybe let me just, you know, use guilt if necessary. You know, you employ the burden of loving one another as an added impetus for prayer. It's that idea, you know, the foxhole, you fight for the guy next to you. We pray because of one another, because of one another. Whitfield said this. You know, he said, God judges nations. You know how God judges nations? By giving them unfaithful pastors. He gives nations ministers and pastors who do not teach the Word of God and who do not pray. And that's how God judges nations. He gives them over. Incredible. How does God bless nations? He blesses nations by giving them pastors and ministers who preach faithfully the Word of God and who pray for its people. Well, take it down a notch to a church. How does God bless a church? By giving it a nice building, growth in size, right? good activities. No. God blesses the church by giving her elders, pastors, and leaders who teach the word and who pray for the church. How does God judge a church, curse a church? By giving her pastors who do not pray, shepherds who have no concern for the flock. What about your family? Is your family blessed? Yeah, my family's blessed. My husband buys me jewelry and clothes. Nice car, we got a home. Yeah, my wife's a good cook, you know. She's really nice to me and helps me. Yeah, we have good income. We vacations to Europe and Hawaii and we're healthy and we have many children. We're blessed. No. If you have a husband and wife, father and mother, who teaches the Word of God and prays for the family, you are blessed. You're blessed. But if you are a husband or a wife, Father or mother, and you're not praying for one another. You're not praying for your children. It doesn't matter how rich you are. 
doesn't matter how many articles of clothing you own, what kind of car you drive. You are not blessed. Let us go to the closet in adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication for the glory of God on behalf of our family, of our church, and on behalf of our nation and this world. Our Holy Father, gracious, loving King, Lord, you are the Father exemplified in Luke 15 when, your prodigal, when the prodigal son came back and we turned. You ran to us. You hugged us. You kissed us. You embraced us. Gave us a ring on our finger signifying our adoption into your family. You, do, you did that on our moment of salvation, but you do that every time we confess our sins to you. Every time we turn away from our sins and we turn towards you, you run to us. And Father, we confess to you this morning. We confess to you and we're, we're shameful because of our neglect of prayer. We have a form of godliness, but we deny its power. And that's evident because we do not pray as we ought. We do not labor in prayer. We do not sow seeds in prayer. Lord, we do not call upon your name in private, in secret, before God who sees all things in secret. Lord, we confess these things to you and we accuse ourselves. And yet we're thankful, Lord, that you are faithful to us and your promises stand. Oh Lord, that you will make us a people who would who abound in prayer, who delight and rejoice in the privilege of prayer because it glorifies you and because it is powerful, because prayer works. Prayer is effectual. Lord, may our lives, our families, our church be built up, not with human hands, but it will surely fall. May, may they all be built up by you through our prayers, so that you might receive all glory. Lord, help us, Lord. Start this day on the journey of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.